On Forgotten Gems, we look at some film festival favorites that initially received a lot of attention, but have since either fallen into obscurity or fallen out of favor. We're going to dig them up and relitigate. On this episode, we're looking at the Golden Bear winning German-Turkish drama Head On from 2004. So let's begin. Welcome to Forgotten Gems, a chance to rediscover festival favorites. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me, as always, is a living legend, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Doug! Doug, it's 2021. It's 2021. We've the left... The new fucking millennium, huh? Yeah, that's, I guess. Welcome to the new millennium! <laughs> I, I refer to it as a willennium, but I see what oh, you're that's saying. that's true. Here, that's fair. That's uh, fair. Liam, we are in the new year, the year 2021. We've left uh, what is a very controversial year, let's say, behind the year 2020. Uh I have a hot take, Doug. You ready? Please. 2020 sucked. It was yes. real bad. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah, I don't care what the pundits, the talking heads have to say. I say, Liam O'Donnell says, and you can take that to the bank, <laughs> 2020 sucked balls. Well, you say what we're all thinking, Liam, which is why people listen. Uh, <laughs> Twenty. I have a hot take. I suspect that 2021 might be as bad as 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and we won't have an orange man to blame for it all, so it's going to be that much worse. Oh, he'll still be out there, Liam. He's not going anywhere. That's fair. He'll still I mean, exist. At, he'll, no, he'll still be in the White House, sir. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, they're going to try. I really do think they're going to try, but, you know, fingers crossed. Yeah, well, it if you treat – the world and the experiences of vulnerable people as a uh, a movie that you're just watching and not participating in, then all of this is probably very entertaining for you, listener. But uh, if you uh, if you have a human empathy, then it's probably very difficult to know that a lot of people are suffering and hurting right now, and there isn't a lot that you can necessarily directly do about it. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but Liam, we have a lot of podcasts to record in the year 2021, almost certainly, <laughs> unless we're all struck down by some horrible disease. Uh, Liam, what are your predictions for the year 2021? Oh boy. Well, let's go. Let's avoid all of the um, depressing. Mm-hmm. Nope. Actually, I don't know if I can. I, I'm yeah. searching my brain for positive predictions for 2021. Well, I I do think that with some hostility towards him i do think that there will be a new president uh in the white house in america uh so i guess that's a thing i do think that assuming there isn't a second strain of covid that's worse than the first Mm -hmm. i do think that come summertime a lot of things are going to start to open up again um uh, you know the one thing that's been predicted is that post COVID, let's say, or at least when uh, a majority of people are vaccinated, that sure. there's going to be this kind of like, like period of free love and uh, and and hedonism because everyone has been locked up and they need to kind of express themselves. Do you predict this kind of hedonistic tendency that people are going to kind of embrace? No, I think <laughs> I think uh, I think the people the people who would be inspired to act in that way have not really probably been as quarantined as they should and the <laughs> folks who have been very quarantined maybe about half of them might feel inclined to just go a little crazy with it but i bet you another half are like 
going to have such PTSD of anxiety around this thing that they're going to continue to be careful even if they suspect they don't need to be because they're going to be just anxious about it. Like, I'm going to be anxious. Like, I could go get the vaccine now. I mean, I can't get it now, but you know what I mean? Like, if I did mm-hmm. go get it now, and if I was like, okay, I got the vaccine, now I'm just going to, like, live my life, that would be hard for me at this point, Doug. I would still feel a little bit of anxiety about it, especially knowing that there's another strain that, like, who knows, maybe the vaccine works on, maybe it doesn't. That makes me feel weird. I don't it's- know that I'm excited to just live life again. I want to be I, – I need I, – I, I'm less inclined to be like, okay, the fire's gone from my backyard. So let's go live. I'm like, well, let's wait till it's gone from most people's backyards <laughs> and then I'll be more stoked. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Maybe I, I will say like as soon as there are shows again, I'm going to be like a 20 year old. Like I'm going to just go to shows and mosh like I'm not 41. Years but don't old. you think like that's going to be one of the most difficult things to be in a mass crowd of people, right? Yeah, no, 100%. And I think that um, – there won't be shows again if there is another strain. If if it becomes clear, like I think there's no safe way to do shows, knowing that this is a possibility. But the there is a point at which people will feel, rightly or wrongly, that this particular thing is over, and I will. It will be very hard for me not to make a stupid decision and go to a show. It's just going to be hard because I miss them very much, and part of that. Doug, as you know, and I think people, longtime listeners to anything I've done will know, (laughs) is that it's not just COVID, right? It's that when I had my daughter, I stopped going to shows as much. And I just thought, well, that's fine because they'll be there for me when I return. Only now I know maybe (laughs) they won't be. So if I could go to some, I might just go. You know, I probably wouldn't actually mosh. I'd probably just be in the back with a mask on. But still... It's going to be hard not to want to go because who knows? I don't know, Doug. Like, I mean, uh, at the very least, the venues might not be able to survive. Exactly. That sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Liam, are you experiencing this thing? I've read about it online where you are watching movies or television that was made from before the pandemic. And it gives you a little bit of anxiety because people are so close to each other and they're in mass groups. And it's hard to distance yourself from the world that we are currently living in from the this kind of past experience of mass gatherings. No, it's more like um, you ever watch any of those travel shows like uh, when uh, Bourdain was alive or maybe that Phil show on Netflix or any of those shows where a person travels around and like eats in places that are extraordinary. Uh, (laughs) When I watch those things, I think, wow, that looks amazing. I'll probably never have that experience. I'm starting to have that distance from people having fun in groups. Right. Where like just it's it's a thing that I could easily do. Like I'm watching a show that's depicting a thing that I've done a million times and that I could easily do at some point, but I'm watching it in a way like someone's riding an elephant. Like, oh, that looks amazing. Too bad I'll never do that. You know? <laughs> that's that's it's more that. It's le- it's less like I feel bad. But I mean, part of that, Doug, is because I still see people on social media, even if they're not my friends, uh, they might be friends of friends or where, wherever I th- people get retweeted or whatever it is, there are still people who are living life. And they're yeah. not living the life they were living before COVID because some things just are shut down. But a lot of people are like doing everything that they can. And you would look at their thing and be like, yo, man, like. Do you know? It's uh, you know one of the the one of the craziest things is to think like 
how much easier people's lives would be if they could just stop posting on social media. <laughs> like, <laughs> you could just be completely irresponsible and no one would know. <laughs> but, you know, it's, instead, we got to document it. It's very frustrating for me. My, my uh, A lot of my family lives in Newfoundland, and they have not been hit as hard as most of the world, and certainly not even most of this country of Canada. But um, my family in Newfoundland got together on Christmas exactly the way that they're not supposed to. And they posted all the photos just like they should not have. And they're still not taking it as seriously as I am. And they're not taking it as seriously as we are told to. Uh, I mean, their rules are a little different there than they are here, but it's still, it's just, it, it's, but if you talk to them, they're like, oh yeah, you got to take it seriously. You don't want, you don't want to be one of those people. And I'm like, you're those people. What are you doing? <laughs> right. And also it's, it's, I laugh about it, but it's it's worrisome uh, because I all agree. those people are old as fuck and they're going to die if they get COVID. So I, it's it's not something I like to think about. The weird thing about a situation like this where what's at risk is like the spread of this disease is that people get this unruly sense of like, well, I've been doing this stuff and I haven't gotten it yet, so I'm sure I'm fine. That's not how this works. You know what I mean? Like that's not you're fine until you're not. Yeah. So just assuming like, well, I've been fine up to now, so I'm sure I'm okay, is great. It's actually insane. And it, and you think like, well, only crazy conservatives think that way. But actually, a lot more people are people are inclined. This this may sound like a simplification, but I just think it's true. People are inclined to underreact or overreact. Yeah. They're inclined to not take things seriously because it's easier, or to be so nervous that they take steps that are. Uh, more than they needed to take because it's really hard to know exactly what you need. That's not an easy thing to know, especially like uh, the worst part about this is that people look at these very strong suggestions as like absolute rules. But like there are plenty of people who are being very careful who through circumstances outside of their control end up getting it anyway. And that ends up backing up the irresponsible people because they think, well, they got it. So why I should, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, they were careful and they still got it. Yeah. Cause it sucks, man. Like that's why you're careful is trying to avoid. I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain that to folks because we all want to, feel a certain way about what we're doing. And and I see it too. I have I definitely have family members, mostly in-laws, who uh are being more careful than crazy people, but aren't being careful enough, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, 100%. Now Liam, one of the mass gatherings that should not be taking place right now are film festivals. Oh, you yes. know, the thing that this podcast is about. <laughs> Well, uh, the, the only irony of that, Doug, is not that because mostly they're not taking place. That's true. But it's more that this the thesis of this podcast is that we can't go to festivals. But thanks to the pandemic, we can actually oftentimes go to festivals. Though I will say, if your big marketing push for your online festival is that now that you're online, everyone can come. Uh, but you have geotagged the movies so they can't play in certain regions of the world or even the country. Then uh, your advertising is false. Yeah. So I mean, having... It, I understand done this how a those, couple times. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's look. Speaking as someone from Canada, I probably am a victim of that more than you are. Uh, but it's also, I'm sure, just part of the. You agreement. would think, Doug, but you would be wrong. Okay, all right, Leah. As someone okay. who had a pass to the, I'm going to call it out. As someone who had a pass to the Philadelphia Film Festival and then discovered that a big chunk of those movies could only be watched in the Philadelphia area. Oh. Oh, yes, buddy. They're getting real specific on the shit. And so, uh, yeah, about half the festival I wasn't allowed to watch. 
time to get cool. a VP- time to get a VPN, Liam O'Donnell. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's really what I should have done, but uh, I didn't. I don't have that uh, thing going. Well, Liam, now you can close your eyes. Where I'm going to take you back to the year 2005 and the 54th Whew. Berlin International Film Festival in Berlin, Germany. Guten Tag, Liam. We are at the Berlin International Film Festival in the year 2005, where the international jury is led by the great Francis McDormand. Liam, what do you think about that? Ooh, that's great. Jury president and responsible for the decision of who won the Golden Bear that year. Liam, there was an array of films in competition. You have them in front of you right now. Any of them jump out at you. Uh, I'll be honest, Doug. I need reading glasses, so no. <laughs> it's kind of small here in front of you. A few notable films, uh, including uh, Richard Linklater's Before Sunset. Oh, uh, great. Patty Jenkins' Monster is on the list as well. Uh, but the Golden Bear winner was uh, Fatty Ekin's Head On, which is what we're going to be talking about on this episode, Liam. Now, this is, I think, for this show, a kind of a unique pick in that uh, this movie hasn't been as forgotten as a lot of the movies that we've talked about. Well, I, I, I mean, I think that's fair. I wouldn't say it is also it. It's an interesting pick because I wouldn't say it's totally forgotten, but it's not necessarily in a lot of current conversation. I mean, that's fair enough. But I guess what I'm really trying to say is that the director has gone on to a lot of success post this, which in a lot of the, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that because we're, I'm thinking of like Denny Villeneuve, who's gone on to massive success afterwards, um, uh, or Barry Jenkins or something like that. But this feels like a movie where, um, where it's this is not necessarily the best movie by the director, but I think you can make a case that it is, uh, or at least the most rewarded movie from a director who's gone on to a lot of success. I think that's fair, but I also think that, um, and this might be just a part of the era, right? But sure. we, I don't think we're far enough from the 2000s, uh, in a sense, that people have as great a feeling on you know, what sort of persists and what doesn't, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, I'm not convinced that this, well, we'll talk about whether this movie deserves more attention than it's getting or not. <laughs> That's kind of the whole idea of the show. But I mean, I, it's also uh, different uh, in that this particular director didn't go to Hollywood afterwards and start making Hollywood movies. Uh, this is a gentleman who obviously makes very personal projects uh, and and ones that I have not watched outside of Head On. So it's uh, I, I feel like I'm only getting a small piece of the puzzle here, though the piece that I received is, uh, I think, pretty interesting and unique. Liam, any other thoughts on the Berlin Film Festival? Well, I do think it's, it's a festival that... Um... It occupies an interesting space because it doesn't have the huge, huge, huge prestige of like Cannes, right? Like something, you know, everyone knows about that festival. However, when I talk to people who are programming for other festivals, Berlin is one of the bellwethers that people look at, that they care about, that they want to know how did it do at Berlin? What did people think there? And so to me, it seems important for that reason. However, um, I can't particularly read this list because it's too small. But having looked at the list of films that have um, been in competition at Berlin before, there's always stuff there that I never hear about that just sort of goes away. This movie is not that, as as we will 
be revealed in our conversation. Somehow I saw this before, even if I <laughs> forgot having seen it, having seen it, um, it, it made its way onto my sort of, you know, not prestigious uh, home video screen. But um, I, I think Berlin is interesting because, well, it, it probably has a lot of more uh, namesake in, in Europe. Uh, for the U.S., it, it's interesting which movies from it are chosen to get platformed here and right. which are not. And it, and yeah. it feels pro- to me to be probably random, just a, a, a chance thing. Yeah, I guess there's an element of that. I mean, I do think that is a very prestigious film festival, and maybe because it doesn't have the the kind of um, size aspects of something like Sundance or TIFF or Cannes, that it doesn't have as many of those social pressures to, you know, focus heavier on the English-speaking market, that sort of thing. Uh, and that if, I mean, if you look at this list of movies, it's extremely international, which I love, right? I mean, that's what you kind of would hope in an international film festival. But it, there really is kind of a width and breadth on display here. And also Ron Howard. Ron Howard's on this list with his film The Missing, which I don't even remember what that movie was about, but no. apparently it played in competition at the 2004 Berlin International Film Festival. Liam... We are going to talk about the Golden Bear winning head-on. But before we do that, let's take a break. When we return, 2004's Head On. Wenn Sie Ihr Leben beenden wollen, dann beenden Sie doch Ihr Leben, aber dafür müssen Sie doch nicht sterben. With the intention to break free from strict familial restrictions, a suicidal young woman sets up a marriage of convenience with a 40-year-old addict, an act that will lead to an outburst of envious love. It's head-on from the year 2004 from director Fatih Aiken, who has won numerous awards outside of the Golden Bear for this particular film, including Best Screenplay at the Cannes Film Festival for his film The Edge of Heaven in 2007, as well as the Golden Globe Award for Best Foreign Language Film for his film In the Fade from the year 2017. He also wrote this movie, which started Stars, uh, the great Beryl Uniel as Kahit. His performance in this, we'll talk about it. I think it's absolutely unbelievable. He sadly passed away uh, just recently in the year 2020, as well as uh, uh, Sybil Kikeli as Sybil in this. Uh, Sybil has uh, gone on to uh, kind of great renown, particularly in the television series Game of Thrones, but she's done a lot of work after this as well. Liam, this is a movie now that you've watched twice, even if you don't fully remember the first time. What do you think of 2004's Head On? It's interesting, Doug. I think overall, I really like this movie. Um, and particularly, as you pointed out, uh, Beryl Unelli. Is that how you pronounce it? Unelli? Unel? Uh, I said Uniel, I think. Uh, Uniel. Beryl Uniel. His performance is amazing. He is, to me, doing something magical in this movie, which isn't to take away from Sybil's performance, which I think is also very good. He, to me, is just kind of a powerhouse in this character that could be so extremely unlikable, but he manages to make his uh, 
his antisocial behaviors seem both violent and vulnerable. Right. You know, so that you believe he's on edge and that he's unpredictable, but you also see why that's related to a, a very deep hurt and a very uh, 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 intense sort of, I think, PTSD in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, and and I think the film sort of subtly acknowledges generational differences in the question of assimilation. That for Absolutely. for um, Cahill. Uh, there is a need, and and inspired partly by the influence of like punk and other kind of you know uh, countercultural movements, there is a real feeling that his identity was holding him back, uh, and that he needed to let it go. Um, and so when he meets Sybil, who is also trying to find herself, but feels more restricted by the patriarchy of her Turkish family, Mm -hmm. but less by the actual culture of it. You know, the, 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 let's call it the texture of her culture. She likes the food and the music and the language. None of that is the issue. It's just the issue where she feels like she's not free. And for, uh, 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 him, it's, those are part and parcel. So the movie does this great job of showing their differences and how they both are trying to seek their own identities and their own freedom. Right. Uh, but I, I feel a little ambiguous about the movie because I feel like the movie is a little ambiguous on the consequences of where they're at and what they're doing. And I worry that there's a little bit of a conservatism to the movie, which might not be real. Right. Uh, and, and I feel like, you know, I don't think I've seen In the Fade. Maybe I did. I don't know. I, I feel like I kind of want to watch more of this guy's movies just to get a, a, a read on him mm-hmm. because I don't. I don't know that it's intentional. It might be unintentional, but there is a, I think a very legitimate way of reading this movie in which how the movie ends is a commentary on that freedom and on that assimilation that somehow uh, his character is adrift because he lost touch with Turkey. You know what I mean? And, and I think that's, fine to a certain extent especially within the context of european assimilation and how sort of crushing it can be you know but i do think it's not fair to the other gender and political dynamics of the film you know what i mean and so Mm -hmm. and so i and i don't know that that's intentional again i think it's meant to be ambiguous but it's it's not clear and it's you know anyone who's listened to us long enough knows that I actually kind of like ambiguity a lot of times. So I don't want to say like the movie should have a clear political stance. I don't think that's true, but I do think that figuring out how the story turns in that I'm saying political, but I don't mean that in a party sense. I mean, in like a larger sense of like, um, um, uh, you know, whether there is a right sort of traditional way to be or not. Um, there's a possible conservative bent to the film around that sort of traditional, you know, if you're too free, it's not safe sort of way that like bums me out a little bit. And, 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 and I don't know if that's there or not. So I think that's, I mean, let's let, I think we should spell it out in that, in that, Please do. in the final 45 minutes, Sybil in particular, after she has gone to Istanbul and uh, has gotten, uh, is living with her cousin and ha, ha, you know, has gained a certain level of freedom. She basically, goes head on into rock bottom and she begins drinking heavily and doing a lot of drugs. Uh, she starts uh, getting into opium and ends up getting raped and ends up getting beaten horribly on the street. And then off screen, uh, 
something happens in her life where basically the movie a period of time passes and we don't really know what's going on there in that period and when we next see her she has quote-unquote cleaned up and she has a daughter and has a you know a, a, a partner and we don't really know what that that middle part that ambiguity exists i think to some extent in that that section that occurs off screen it's something i really like as a choice but i see what you're saying because it feels kind of like you know this is what she, this is what life looks like you know this is sorry this is what a successful life looks like or this is what a goal of a life should be but i mean this is a character that still isn't um content with with her life with her daughter with what seems to be a very stable environment and nor should she be expected to be uh and when uh she meets up with this character that she has fallen in love with but has been estranged from for many years you can see on screen that there's a uh, a lot of conflict within herself but i mean at its core this movie is about two very fucked up people um and the it's strange because the plot summary of this, if you were to describe it in a Hollywood sense, it's, you know, a marriage of convenience where the two characters fall in love with each other. It's almost like a romantic comedy plot, right? But I mean, it's the religious version of Green Card. Yeah, exactly. Gerard Depardieu. 100%. But then it's placed in a much more realistic scenario between two characters who are a lot more damaged from you know from from a lot of different reasons why whether it be familial whether it be religious whether it be cultural there's a lot of reasons that these characters are so screwed up i mean kahit we're told later in the film that he had a wife who passed away we don't really know the details about that but that's obviously plays into his potential ptsd uh and, and sybil is someone who is seeking this freedom because we're told that, you know, when she held hands with a boy, her brother beat the hell out of her to the point where he broke her nose. So this is, a you know, someone someone fleeing violence. And so this is a char- these are characters who are starting off from a desperate situation. And what we find at the end of the movie is it doesn't matter what kind of transition that they go through, through all of these events that you see. At the end, they're still both extremely desperate. Yes, but I think there's a way the way that he shows up for her at the end. Right. Is the way that an American film would end like that that it, clearly his love for her is real in a romantic western sense. And she chooses not that. You know that that even though he's cleaned up and he's come for her and he's been on this journey to find her and clearly she still has affection for him, that doesn't really matter in the it, the way the movie ends is like her the stability for her daughter and the stability of this whoever this person is that she settled down with, that's clearly the right choice and he you know she's going to stay with that and that's I how guess it's you could be. interpret it as she ran away from certain social pressures at the beginning of the movie. But now she is being confined by different social pressures at the end, right? That might right. be less a decision and one that it's like, I can't do this because what would people think of me? What would my life look like? How much can I rely on this person who has now entered my life, even if she does love them? I do think that there's, like you said, it's not as cut and dry as, uh, say, a Hollywood movie would be. But there is a decision made at the end. Well, and that's a th- but that, I think this is the thing, right, is that she has still chosen – the domesticity she's presented with in Germany is constrained by part, I think, and I think the movie thinks, by their immigrant status. That part of their identity is to be different than the um, 
secular German world around them. Sure. They're maintaining Mm -hmm. their identity regardless of any particular. It's not clear that anyone is that interested in the nuts and bolts of uh, their religiosity per se, but they're more interested in the kind of cultural practices associated with it that create their separateness from German culture, right? But then when she gets back to Istanbul, which turns out is much more modern and uh, and uh, engaging than she thought it would be. There's also dangers in Istanbul that are that are maybe worse than what she encountered in in Germany. Um, but she still ends up choosing a domesticity that feels much more modern than what she was offered when she was part of an immigrant community in Germany. But it's still domesticity compared to, uh, you know. He feels like an agent of chaos still, even if he's put the suit on, he's gotten out of prison, mm-hmm. he's put the suit on, he's come for her, uh, he's offering her unambiguously his love, he still feels chaotic. You know? Oh, yeah. And so she's choosing the stability over the chaos. And maybe that's healthy, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> it also could be seen as a certain kind of neoliberal response to you know him and so you know like yeah you don't need to be uptight like your parents but you need to have an apartment and a child and a good source of income that's just what you need in life whereas like she could have run away with him and brought her daughter i don't think he's against the daughter i don't think i don't he actually think he... specifically tells her to bring the daughter yes. when at least at least it suggested before then that maybe she's going to leave without her daughter yeah i i think i think the the film could have played but again i'm making a strong case in one direction i do again i think it's ambiguous i think the the film is ambiguous about a number of things and that does probably make it better but i you know there's a small part of me that's like well are you know what what exactly are we saying here and uh, that might just be my bias because i feel for this character in a certain amount of way i i do think on second watch you know like i remember not all the details of this movie, but I do remember watching it a while ago and really identifying with him a lot more than I do now. Um, I think that like his um, his forty some year old brokenness was much more appealing to me at twenty something. You know, right. like I think I saw this when I was probably like twenty six or something. Um, now as a forty some year old myself, I'm like, come on, dude, get your shit together. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, it it's so. As much as I think there are aspects of it that are appealing, it is an extended adolescence that's just there to deal with pain. Right. And I think what we've learned in 2020 is that you could still have a lot of the things that uh, he feels is separating him from the rest of the culture and s- still be a functioning adult. You right. know what I mean? You, you don't actually have to hate yourself and be self-destructive to still think Sushi and the Banshees are pretty sick. You know what I mean? Like those are not, those don't go hand in hand. But for him, it's become, and I think partly what that's about is also the relationship to the immigrant experience, right? His embrace of punk rock as a youth seems pretty clear now as an adult to be related to his anxieties about his identity and his anxieties about the society that he lives in. I want to talk a little bit more about this performance from uh, Beryl Uniel uh, as, as Kahit here. Sure. I, like, he, he kind of plays two roles in this, right? There's sort of the post-prison role and the pre-prison role. Now, they're the same person, and the, but it's just the way that that character deals with these kind of really extreme emotions that's very different. In that, before he goes to prison, which I, is a kind of major spoiler, but it doesn't happen too late into the movie, um, he 
he is capable of extreme violence out of nowhere. Like you said, extremely self-destructive. Afterwards, he sort of tamed to a certain extent, or at least seems to be, but you can kind of feel then that a lot of these emotions are still very much there. He's just, I guess, I don't know if he's controlling them is, is the best way to say it. You still get the impression that maybe that violence could come out of him again. But my favorite bit of the movie is after he gets out of prison, he goes to... He tries to find Sybil, and what he does is he goes to the hotel where her sister is, at this point, the manager, and he sits down with her, and he has this conversation about, you know, it's it's interesting, in very few words, he is trying to convince the sister that he is someone that is, I guess, I don't know, trustworthy enough, or that the love that he has is sincere enough, that this is something, like, information that she should be able to pass on to him. But there's this amazing moment where he starts speaking English, um, when after, you know, there's very little English in this movie, it's mostly German and Turkish, uh, and and it's kind of astounding, right? Even her response to it is is to speak English in response to him. But what what he says there is something along the lines of, do you have the power to stop me from doing this? And it's it's a really kind of pointed statement about the the kind of what he's still capable of. He even says it to his quote unquote uncle in the movie that you know that that the only way he got through being in prison was the thought of her and the thought of their relationship together. So at that point, you know, he's he's basically on a mission and that nothing seems to be able to get in his way. But that makes it seem like he is much more kind of outwardly emotional than he shows up in in the movie. Once he's got that suit on, the, a lot of that kind of uh, unpredictability of his character beforehand seems to be neutered. Yeah, but I think it... it the unpredictability of the character earlier on in the movie, though it results in violence both towards others and himself, is weakness. It is totally yes. mm-hmm. a response to his pain. And what he's learned in prison is to control that and to be focused. But he has made her the object of that. And, and I think in some ways what the ending accomplishes in regards to him is it takes away some of the romanticization uh, of that. That he's sort of like... In an American film, first of all, a lot of this shit wouldn't be so crazy. Right. But in, in an American <laughs> film, we would have a similar plot where, like, the fact that he has finally gotten some some control of himself because of his feelings towards her would mean something. And the movie would have to honor that in some way. Even if she doesn't leave her family, there has to be some way in which it's worth it. And this movie feels like it is criticizing that to a some extent and i appreciate that that the, that it's sort of saying like yeah well that doesn't matter <laughs> you know like <laughs> good for you that's great hopefully you can carry this on but uh but she's not going to meet you on the bus man it's just not going to happen you know and so uh that part of it i definitely appreciate where it gets complicated is how that dynamic relates to her and her character and i think that's what is interesting about the film as well as possibly troubling but i i still kind of like it too i i don't want anyone to get the idea that i'm like well maybe i don't like the movie i think i really like the movie but I, but i do wonder like how what does this ending sort of say about um because i think the movie plays with the feminism question here the question of gender roles and, and then i don't think it resolves that question and i think that's okay i'm not saying a male director probably is the one who needs to solve this issue for us per se but i do think it, it leaves it open in a sense that is open for interpretation 
I mean, I think that's totally fair. It reminds me, I mean, not to, to make this comparison too directly, but it reminds me of like the work of Neil Laboot, a director who I don't particularly care for, but whose early work I watched and thought, oh, he is making a comment on misogyny. And then later I started thinking, oh, no, wait, he's a misogynist. <laughs> and that yeah. just is what is coming out in his movie. And you don't necessarily know until you get more context from seeing more of the person's work. But as a standalone vehicle... You know, because it's based on this interpretation, I don't think it's necessarily fair, and I'm not saying that you are doing this, to to take it one way or the other, that this is trying to make that particular statement. And no. I do think, by the way, that Sybil uh, Kikeli's performance in this is unbelievable. I think she's Very really, good. really good as well. And she has to go through, you know, both of them go through like a physical transformation throughout it. But I do think that the brutality that her character has to experience is, that's a really difficult thing to come out of the other side of especially when you see them kind of spiraling and to come out of and still I mean one of them I think the miracles of this movie is that both characters remain sympathetic and uh, and kind of believable after having gone through both what we see on screen and what obviously has happened before we see them on screen uh, and then at the end you can kind of understand the decisions that both of these characters make that even though she is choosing quote unquote choosing uh, domesticity over the freedom that at the beginning of the movie, which is the, her opposite uh, kind of decision making, that that it makes sense that she would do that, that she has a daughter, that she has this this uh, this life that that to give up for something that would be very uh, potentially chaotic is a decision that a lot of people in her position would make. It's just that I think we're used to in movies kind of wanting the character to make the tough decision because. It's more exciting for us as viewers, but that's not necessarily how real life goes. No, not at all. And and I, I think that um, again, I don't want to assume intention on anything here because you know there could be a variety of interpretations, as we said. But I do wonder if the ending really does function as a criticism of the kinds of insane romantic films that we actually treasure absolutely uh, in the U.S. Uh, and and other parts of Europe too. That like. We want these grand acts. I mean, uh, think about something like The Notebook. You know what I mean? Like, uh, there's just so many of these romantic American films that really are just like your emotions are more important than any other contextual issues at play that you could destroy many people's lives as long as you knew it was true love for whatever the fuck that means. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's this movie's like, no, like it honors their love. Like, clearly, them finally being together which like is important to say for I, I don't know who would be listening to this that hasn't seen the movie but if you haven't you know they they until this post-prison moment there's been no consummation there's been no sort of uh you know they make out one night but they can't go through with it because it, it would make their marriage a real marriage and not a pretend marriage you right know? and so you know that moment is is huge but that moment doesn't mean anything in the context of her life, really. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't change her circumstances. It certainly doesn't make her child go away or her partner go away or the various other social relationships they've probably developed at this point go away. And it certainly doesn't make her want to leave what we're shown is a very bougie, nice apartment. Let's remember, <laughs> our man lives in a shithole back in Germany. You know what I mean? Like, especially post-prison, he probably doesn't have a huge house waiting for him. So she's also, you know, to some extent choosing comfort and i don't blame her for that you know because it's like you know a lot has happened since he's been away it's important as well that we never meet her partner 
Never. at the end of it. And we don't even see him. We just hear him off screen. Uh, so, I mean, the, you know, there's even though there's a suggestion that the love that she has for, for Kahit is deeper and maybe more significant than whatever she has with this person, we don't really know that. We're just interpreting that because we've seen their relationship and well, we haven't and, seen that one. And that's one of the moments that I interpret maybe not intentionally but i think could be read as a feminist thing because i think in a lot of these movies it becomes about the two men yes and the, and the mm-hmm. woman's humanity doesn't even matter all that matters is which of these men does the audience prefer and then she has to be the conduit for our preference erasing her actual agency and identity and that's like that's not what this is it doesn't matter he might be the hero or the villain it doesn't matter that's not what this decision is about Liam, one of the really interesting stylistic things about this movie, and this is a very stylish movie, uh, though it's, it's uh, very kind of grungy and dirty at the same time, but one of the kind of filmic techniques it, it uh, includes is that the movie is split up into acts, even though it's not, uh, you know, we don't get a, a title card or anything like that, but it, at separate moments throughout the movie, we see a, a band, uh, six men in dinner jackets and a singer in a red dress, um, who are performing a song, usually these uh, w- these love songs, that kind of split the movie into pieces. What was your interpretation of why that was included in the movie? I don't actually know. I mean, other than it, it very much, they're, uh, it feels, it, to me at least, that they're Turkish and that the songs that they're singing are probably like traditional Turkish songs, but I don't yeah. know that. Yeah, and, and music example. music is a big part of this movie also. Yeah. Um, and I do think it sets their love story within the context of other love stories, which tend to be kind of tragic and complicated as well. So I think it does a little bit of that, but I, I don't know if there was an intention beyond that other than, you know, uh, I've mentioned it a few times, but I think it's worth reiterating, you know, living in diaspora is complicated and feeling connected to your, who you are, like your, your culture and stuff while in diaspora is complicated. And so, um, I think the, what, for me at least part of what this band did was center this story in their identities as Turkish folks, regardless of the beginning being very much about their lives in Germany. I also think that it takes a sort of specific scenario that we're watching, and by including those sequences, it makes it a little bit more... I don't know. Symbolic is the right word, but it makes it sure, you know yeah. it makes it kind of bigger, right? They're not exactly like a Greek chorus necessarily commenting on the action that we're watching, but it makes it feel the fact that we're kind of taken out of the movie for a second is taken out of this kind of very realistic and very grimy scenario and reminded of this kind of like beauty uh, in the midst of all of this. It's I think it's it's both representative of. Um, of the fact that there are beautiful moments in this movie generally, even if they're in, within the grime, but also that this is more symbolic or representative of an experience that a lot of people have had, even though you know someone as a Westerner might have very little context for the Turkish experience in Germany in the early two thousands. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I think I'm also thinking about what you said, Doug, about the specificity of it. Uh, mm. be, be, it could be limiting, but I also think that. For some, even though this is a film released in Germany, it, it its audience is also going to be Turkish folks. Some of whom might feel maybe judged. You know what I mean? Maybe alienated to some extent because they identify more with her brother than mm, you know maybe. what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wonder to what extent the band 
connects people like it sort of says like this is a story of our people this isn't a story of uh, part of the issue with living in diaspora right is that some of the folks that you want to feel connected to because they are who you think of as your uh kinfolk they no longer see you that way because you're from germany you know what i mean uh, well, that you know, that doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel okay. To what extent is that that band maybe helped to root this film in a way that says this is the story of a specific place and a specific group of people, even if it starts in a way that maybe is harder to identify with. It uh, it's also interesting, and I'm sure this is likely the case for you that you probably know people who are like these characters you know self-destructive people like not exactly like it maybe they're not struggling with exactly the same sort of things but i certainly know people in their 40s who have you know have covered up their trauma with substance abuse and are trying to hold on to a youth that is you know rapidly slipping away from them and you know and and some of them come out of it the other end okay uh, and some of them self-destruct entirely i mean one of the things that we know about uh beryl uniel the the actor here is that he w- struggled with alcoholism his entire life and i think you can there's a reality to the experience that you see on this in this performance and apparently i guess he was um he was trying to stay off of alcohol during the making of it which is why in the second half i think you can kind of see it in his face that you know he's looking more gaunt and he's looking more kind of pale that that he's struggling with something that his character is struggling with and that wasn't an actorly decision it was just something that he was dealing with in real life i mean it just adds an extra dimension and reality to what you're seeing on the screen but i mean it's it's i really do think it's an extremely worthwhile movie it might be the best of the movies that we've covered here on forgotten gems at least for for me personally, and one that I think is actually uh, it's going to stick with me. I, I think unlike Liam O'Donnell, who watched this movie and apparently forgot that it existed, I think it's one that's going to stick with me for a while. Well, I mean, to be fair, I did completely forget because <laughs> as soon as the movie started, I'm like, why is this so familiar? <laughs> and I do. I for, and and strangely, I really remembered every aspect of the movie until the bus, and then I was like. Does she come? I don't think she comes. I don't remember what happens, and I couldn't remember for some reason. Um, n- no, I, 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 uh, I don't think it's an uncommon experience to like rent something one night, Absolutely. really, in- really enjoy mm-hmm. it. Think, oh, I, I you know, I got to keep that one in mind, and then it gets washed away in a million other movies because you know we watch a lot of movies and that happens and you know 2004 is definitely pre-letterbox so it's also the kind of title that can be i mean it doesn't say so much about the the i mean it 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 does kind of literally these characters are heading i guess head on into something uh i think it's kind of uh it's also known as against the wall that's kind of the literal translation of its original title like these characters are up against the wall head on is one that you could easily forget or confuse with a different movie I think that's fair. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't. I wish I could remember it now just so I could say, like, well, this was the circumstances of my forgetting the film. Um, but I do know, like, if I saw it in 2004, you know, 15 years ago, I was um, pretty wrapped up in my own complicated relationships with uh, uh, women. And so I'm sure 
all I could see of the movie was not the various cultural dynamics, but their complicated interactions, which is like, I think, actually kind of a limited view of what's going sure. on in the film. So um, I I am glad we revisited it. I would highly recommend it. I do want to say, you know, when I, when I say that ambiguousness of the ending kind of could be complicated, it is only in that um, there are folks who might watch this and feel there is something more conservative at play. And I don't know that that's true but i also know that i don't i don't know that i'm an expert at reading all the tea leaves let's put it that way you know i think i think that's very fair i had an experience last night i was watching i don't know if you've gotten to watch yet those uh small acts movies not Uh, yet i'm I'm really looking forward to it yeah so in the in the one that i was watching these two dudes quote a reggae song at each other right Mm mm-hmm uh, which makes sense. You know, they're Jamaican and it's like a way for the young and the old to connect over music. And, you know, that's great. The lyric they use, I immediately identified with because it's in a dead press song. <laughs> and I realized, oh, that's a reference I didn't get. That dead press was referencing something that a bunch of people know deep in their bones, but I didn't understand it. I, my feeling on this movie is a little bit of that, that from what I understand, this is great. Do I suspect there might be something under the surface that I'm not reading that? Yeah, I wonder about that because of the ambiguity, because there might be something there that I don't quite know. And so that's my only hesitation on saying, I think the movie's really great. But if someone wants to say, well, it is really great, but there it, it takes a conservative turn that is worrying, I wouldn't be surprised at that. I'm not saying it does that, but that's just what I realized when it was over was I don't know how to read that ending. I don't know I don't know what it means. And I don't know that it has to mean one thing at all, because stories are complicated. They don't mm-hmm. need to have a textbook, uh, you know, and this is why that happened. That's not real. But it is true that when directors have ideologies, they seep into endings like that. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a very fair way of putting it. I mean, I think we all have experienced, you know, sort of the moral aspects of watching films over the past few years, especially with social media involved, where you might watch something, interpret it in a certain way, and then someone else interprets it in a different way. And you sort of, and that becomes a conflict between both of you when really those could be very both very valid interpretations, uh, and you shouldn't necessarily have to know, A, the filmography of a director in order to fully understand the individual work that you're watching, nor should you have to read a bunch of interviews with them necessarily to try to pick up on it. I really think 100%. That, I really think that, that what we get from this movie, and I not to say that that ambiguity and the difficulty that you are having with it, or the frustrations that you may have with it, um, I think that's part of the movie watching experience, and whether that's intentional on the director's part or not, I don't think it really matters. I think that just is no. what you are taking away from it. Uh, Liam, if people want to check out Head On from the year two thousand four, and I would highly recommend it, even if what we're talking about doesn't necessarily sound like it's uh, something that you would be interested in. Uh, it's available to rent through Amazon Prime. Uh, if you have the Strand releasing uh, add-on, uh, which has a trial, so you could watch it right now, um, it's it's included with that as well. Uh, it's also available to streaming, I think, in um, rental streaming in other places if you want to check it out. If you have seen Head On from the year 2004 and want to give us some feedback, why don't you head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can leave us some uh, feedback via our social media or email. Uh, and we're always happy to hear from listeners in regards to their own thoughts and how we got it all wrong. Liam, on the next episode of Forgotten Gems, what will we be watching? Well, Doug, we'll be covering 1978's <laughs> Bye Bye Monkey, starring Gerard Depardieu, everyone's favorite weird Frenchman. 
Uh, this yes. film uh, tied uh, for the Cannes Film Festival from the year 1978's uh, Jury Grand Prize. Bye Bye Monkey. I have to be honest, Liam, this is not a movie I know anything about. I do have to say that the plot summary sounds extremely bizarre. Uh, apparently it's like a comedy drama. It's, uh, it, <laughs> I don't even want to go over what the plot is. Uh, you can look it up online, listeners, and you can tell us if it's supposed to be interesting or not. But uh, it does have a all-star cast, including, of course, Gerard Depardieu, James Coco, Marcello Mestrioni, uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald. I mean, it's a lot of familiar names in the cast and, uh, and a lot of talent behind it. I just want to point out that uh, Stefania Cassini is playing a character named only feminist actress. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I guess we'll find out what that's all about on the next episode of Forgotten Gems when we talk about 1978's Bye Bye Monkey. Liam, if people want to check out more Forgotten Gems or other Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, um, they can find the latest episodes at Cinepunks.com, as well as a variety of other podcasts and great writing. Uh, And pretty soon they'll be able to see uh, the site redesigned by our own Doug Tilly. Thanks, Doug. (laughs) I better get on that. So it's not two weeks down the line and people are wondering, where the hell is it? I said pretty soon. It's fine. People can be patient. (laughs) Um, They can also find, of course, uh, our archive of episodes uh, for all of the various shows underneath the Cinema Smorgasbord label at Cinema Smorgasbord. Dot com. They can also uh, follow us on Twitter at Cinema Smorg, S M O R G, uh, on Twitter, where you know we just update about what the shows are coming out, and occasionally Doug posts pictures of his feet that you can screen cap and stuff, mm-hmm. so, you know, stuff like that. Uh, they can also follow uh, Cinepunks on Twitter, Instagram, and check out uh, Cinepunks on Facebook, all C I N E P U N X. They can follow me on Twitter at Liam Rules, R U L Z, and they can follow you you on twitter at doug underscore tilly that's t-i-l-l-e-y thank you so much Liam. yeah and yeah please get behind cinepunks there's going to be a lot of great content on the there in the year 2021 and yeah thank you for listening to cinema smorgasbord we just completed our first year in the year 2020 we had a lot of content released been sticking to that weekly schedule we have a lot planned for the year 2021 uh, some new podcasts are going to launch before the end of this year i'm sure um, we're going to be finishing up our john singleton series if you want to check out our podcast devoted to actors as diverse as carol kane as jackie chan as the filipino peter lori vic diaz they're all there at cinema smorgasbord com. But for now, Liam, it's time to close up the Forgotten Gems bag. We're going to be back really soon with Bye... What's it called? Bye Bye Monkey. Bye Bye Monkey? <laughs> There's a monkey in it. I guess, like, it's its, it's original title. I guess it's Au revoir, Au revoir Monkey. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, I don't know. Did it have a French title? I guess it did. I guess it did. It's weird because it's very French, but it's set in Long Island, y'all. And, fil- you, wait, and wait, wait. filmed in English and a French-Italian co-production. So, I mean, this is going to be who knows what we're going to see here. I'm very excited about it. Oh, man. All right. Let's wrap up. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Night. Shot.
Zeit zu 